public support for the minimum wage in general runs about 70 to 80 percent. And in all the state referenda, there have been about 28 or nine of them. They uh, Almost everyone has passed. So Florida, while it was voting for Trump, was passing a $15 minimum wage. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a podcast from the ONB Institute. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the minimum wage with Michael Reich, a professor of economics and chair of the Center on Wage and Employment Dynamics at UC Berkeley. The federal minimum wage has been frozen at $7.25 an hour since 2009. That's an annual income for a full-time worker of just $15,000. A few weeks ago, Senator Bernie Sanders and other progressive legislators introduced the 2021 Raise the Wage Act, which would gradually increase the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. After 2025, the minimum wage would continue to increase to keep up with inflation without having to introduce new legislation every few years. The lawmakers had been trying to get this act included in the coronavirus relief package so it could be passed with a simple majority. But on Thursday, we learned that's probably not going to happen because of an archaic Senate rule, meaning it would need to be introduced as a standalone bill and require 60 votes to pass. Our guest, Michael Reich, is a leading expert on minimum wage research and has published extensively on the topic, including a recent study on how minimum wage hikes reduce racial wage gaps between black and white workers. So we'll discuss that as well as address some of the common critiques of minimum wage increases. Here was our conversation. I mean, I guess the first thing really is just to address the most recent news about the um, the Minimum Wage Act not being or very unlikely going to be included in the and the coronavirus relief package, which a lot of us expected would happen. So what did you think when you heard that news? Well, I was very disappointed uh, to, to learn that the parliamentarian had ruled it out of order. I'm glad the House is still keeping it in, the, in their bill. And I hope the Senate has a full vote on the bill so we can find out who is on record for and against a $15 minimum wage. And I, I know there have been other... Uh, attempts that have been talked about, such as putting the bill into another budget reconciliation uh, measure down the road, or Bernie Sanders is talking about using tax credits as a means to get firms to raise their minimum wages to $15. But uh, it's going to be very difficult to get 60 votes in the Senate for any minimum wage bill. $10 is still like a poverty wage. And uh, I, I doubt that would get 60 votes at this point. But I'm not a political scientist. I'm, I'm here to talk about the economics of the minimum wage. Uh, well, let's talk about the economics of the minimum wage then. Um, tell us, I mean, you've been studying the minimum wage for a really long time. Let's say the minimum, let's say it did pass. Let's say it was included in the bill. Um, it did pass. We would get $15 by 2025. What do you expect the impact of that would be on working people? Well, uh Best estimates are that about 32 million people would get raises of uh, averaging about $3,300 a year. And of course, that would be higher among the people who are lower paid to begin with. Uh, so that that's already a really large number, and it would help the uh, households of, of those workers quite a bit. We know from past research that Minimum wages are used, higher minimum wages are used, for example, to buy uh, cars, require a car. 25% of black uh, low-wage workers don't have a car. 
in their household. And if you can get a car, and minimum wage also helps with credit, so you can pay for it more easily because credit ratings go up a lot. Then you know you can do something very concrete, not just have more food on the table, but also uh, be able to look for and get jobs or pay much higher because you can search uh, for those jobs in a much broader radius when you have a car. So can you tell us a little bit more about that racial equity component of raising the minimum wage, uh, which you outlined in that new paper that you put out a few weeks ago? And we're going to link to that on our website, belonging.berkeley.edu slash who belongs. Yeah, I don't have the numbers in front of me from that paper and I've been because I've been doing on a lot of work more recently on, on, on the $15 bill itself. But the, uh, the issue is, is something I've worked on for a long time, as you mentioned, not just minimum wages, but also racial inequality. And uh, what you find if you look at, say, uh, workers who have a high school or less degree who are paid uh, less than 1.5 times the current uh, or the rather new minimum wage, uh, that you would that they're disproportionately female, disproportionately uh, black and Latino to a lesser extent, and um, <clears throat> most of these workers are 25 and over. They a lot of them support kids or they're the sole support of their household, and so it, it does seem that a minimum wage would not only uh, increase earnings would benefit all low-wage workers, but it would specifically or especially benefit uh, black workers and female workers. And then when we ran the numbers, we, we found that it did, in fact, the minimum wage increases over the last 20 years, uh, would, would, they have, would they reduce racial inequality? It's not obvious because about, I think, half of black people still live in the South. Which is mainly at 725, and the states that have been increasing their minimum wages, like California or, or state of Washington, uh, uh, are already higher wage states, and so it could be that, uh, and potentially it could be that raising the minimum wage in a patchwork way, as we have been at the state level, would actually widen uh, black-white differences in the country as a whole, not in those individual states comparing what's happening in, in the state of Washington to what's happening, say, in Mississippi. And so it was interesting to, to see whether, in fact, the effect of the minimum wage did reduce racial inequality, racial wage gaps. And we looked at wage, all the wage increases at the state level and the local level, too, uh, over the last 20 years. And then there's just been the federal level. There's only been the increases in, in 2007 to 2009. Uh, at least in, in the last 20 years. So uh, what we find and controlling for a lot of other things that are going on, so we think we have an actual causal analysis rather than uh, you know, a bunch of correlations, is we find that in fact those, that the record of minimum wage increases at the state and federal and local level that does include reducing racial uh, wage gaps, and, and especially uh, among women. But then when we try to figure out why it did that, uh, it wasn't so much that the black workers started a lower wage. We thought that would be the explanation. It was much more that uh, 
these other benefits kicked in, such as being able to acquire a car. And then that led indirectly, in other words, to even more benefits for black workers than for, for white workers. And, and in all these cases, we did not find any uh, evidence of job losses. One of the things I think that hasn't really gotten a whole lot of attention with this uh, push to raise the minimum wage and this act specifically, which was almost included in the coronavirus relief package, was that it's going to phase out these so-called tipped wages. And a lot of people have never heard of this before, but a tipped wage, it's separate from a minimum wage. It's only $2.13 an hour. So could you tell us a little bit, what is this tipped wage and how could it possibly be so low? (laughs) Right. So the the tipped wage was set at $2.13 in 1996 under Clinton, and it was a compromise. Um, And it hasn't been increased at the federal level since. However, states can increase uh, the the so-called subminimum wage, tip minimum wage. And there are seven states for which there's no uh, tip credit, that is, where the minimum wage is the same for servers as for anybody else. And those states include California, as well as Oregon, uh, Washington, Nevada, Alaska, Hawaii, the whole Pacific Rim, in other words. And so especially in California, people haven't heard about it, but even people in the East Coast don't know about it. It's um, the basic idea is that since these workers, the servers are in restaurants, particularly are getting tips, that some of the minimum wage could be covered by tips rather than by the employer. So the employer has to say, uh, provide at least $2.13 per hour. And if the rest of it is made up by tips to get to $7.25, then uh, the employer doesn't have to pay more. If the rest, if the, if the uh, tips don't fill out that amount to $7.25, then the employer is liable to pay more. It's still a, it's still have to, the server still has to get to $7.25. Basically, the mechanism is that consumers, people who dine in these restaurants, think they're they're giving a bonus to the servers for, for good service. But in fact, what they're doing is subsidizing the employer because their tips are replacing the wages that the employer would otherwise have to pay, at least up to about seven twenty five an hour. This is uh, you know, the tips are a really good deal for bartenders on Saturday night. Um, they can make a lot of money per hour in tips, but for servers, especially when you get outside the, the you know the big name restaurants, you're talking about a very uh, small, much smaller amount, and of course it's contingent on how many people come in on a particular night, whether it's raining that night, and so on. So it's not a very reliable way to earn a living. I know that the current minimum wage is only seven dollars and twenty five cents. If you work that out annually, that's only about $15,000 a year. So that's just unlivable. But a $15 wage is still only about $31,000 a year before taxes. And that's still is only $31,000. For a lot of regions, that's also pretty unlivable. Do you even think that that it's, is sufficient for you know a federal minimum wage? Or can we think about going even higher than that? Well, that's the, the $15 would get you to the poverty level for a single individual with a couple of kids, say, now, even in Alabama or Mississippi, where you know, housing costs aren't as high as they are in, in California or New York. Uh, and that I, I think that's that's, elite, that's the lowest 
floor I would want to see is, you know, at least get, get you out of what's called official poverty level. But it is still poverty wages. I mean, it's true. You're not going to be doing very well. You're not going to have many opportunities to go to the you know, vacation or go to the movies or save um, for, for uh, later on in your in your life. So uh, I, I I can see arguments for going higher, but so far we do have higher minimum wages in Seattle and San Francisco. That is, they go above. I think they're now sixteen dollars, something like thirty nine cents in Seattle. Uh, the the concern becomes. Well, when you get to really high minimum wages, will you have negative employment effects? And we haven't seen that yet. And I'm, I'm all for more policy experimenting, uh, particularly for the reasons you're you're saying that we have so much more wage inequality and economic inequality than we used to have. It should be possible to get to uh, a higher minimum wage level, which would make people have better lives and their kids have better lives. But uh, even if it does have some costs in other areas, there's no other policy where we look at the uh, what, whether the policy is good or not just by looking at the employment effect. We should also be looking at the benefits, which include not just getting people out of poverty, but they're, they're healthy. People are healthier. They're better parents um, to their children, and and uh, many other kind of downstream benefits. So what do you tell people when they uh, invoke that argument, that, that age-old argument that we hear all the time that I was you know, told in high school is that you raise the minimum wage, it's going to destroy small businesses, it's going to lead to unemployment. And the Congressional Budget Office just a couple of weeks ago said that if we did pass a $15 minimum wage, it would pull some people out of poverty, I think like 900,000, around a million, but it would also lead to 1.4 million job losses. So what's your response to that? Okay, those are big questions. So we've done, a, uh, in all the years I've been working on the minimum wage, there's been a huge number of minimum wage studies, more than in any other area of economics. And the bulk of the research, of the good research, the, you know, the ones that are really carefully teasing out causal effects rather than just spurious correlations, uh, we're finding more and more that the effects are much smaller uh, than what the Congressional Budget Office was assuming. And the Congressional Budget Office is supposed to be just a neutral umpire here, but they really put their thumb on the scale and trying to uh, come up with much larger uh, employment effects, which scares people. Now, why does a small business say or uh, not, not uh, go out of business because of these minimum wages? The answer, I think, is fundamentally that they can raise their prices. An individual small business can't raise its price when its competitors don't. It'll lose a lot of sales. If there's a fast food st- uh, restaurant across the street and you increase your, you're a fast food restaurant and you increase your prices, people will go across the street. Uh, but if uh, the costs increase for all fast food restaurants, and about the same amount at the, at the same time, which is what happens when you have a minimum wage increase, then from the point of view of the industry as a whole, they can raise their prices some without becoming less competitive because the cost shocks are, are felt by, by everybody, by, by all the uh, <clears throat> people, 
the, the uh, all the businesses. And it, it turns out not to be such a big shock to prices because not all the workers were earning at the lowest minimum wage before. They were earning somewhere between the new and old. Uh, some of them are earning somewhere, I'd say, halfway in between. And uh, also, prices don't really, uh, price increases uh, reflect total costs, not just labor costs. So labor costs are only one third of, the, of operating costs. So if you raise your your labor costs go up by 10%, then your prices would only have to go up by 3%, uh, right? And if some of the workers aren't actually uh, going to make as big an increase as the nominal increase in the minimum wage, then maybe that goes down to 1.5%. And so the price increases could be pretty small for restaurants, even small ones. And... and uh, there are other studies from the Department of Agriculture Economic Research Service that shows that that, that consumers don't uh, go out to eat less when prices go up just by a little bit. They go out a little, I mean, that there was, their response is very small. Now, I did a study of what happened in San Jose when a few years ago when it raised its minimum wage overnight through a public ballot process from $8 to $10. That's it. 25% increase. And as just within the city of San Jose, and I looked at price effects for restaurants inside the city and those just outside across, across the street in some cases. And I found prices went up by the, you know, by an amount that implied that the costs had been fully passed on to the, to the customers within San Jose, but across, a mile away, prices didn't go up where the, where the costs hadn't gone up. And so customers were not, you know, running from inside San Jose restaurants to restaurants elsewhere. Um, they, they were staying with the places that had raised their prices. If they were buying a car, they might have gone farther to get a lower price. But to get a burrito, say, you know, you're not going to travel a couple of miles. It's, it's more trouble than it's worth. So that's what I kind of say is the you know, it's kind of a different economic frame. Even if labor costs go up, it doesn't mean that prices can't go up and they don't have to go up very much. And in the case of restaurants, which are the biggest consumers of low-wage labor, they can go up a little bit without affecting uh, their sales very much. And so basically what minimum wage increases are doing is they're helping the people who work in restaurants and the people who are paying for the minimum wage are mainly the people who eat in restaurants, who are more affluent, and have become even more affluent over the last 20 years with the growth in inequality. What do you think, I mean, let's, you know, uh, put restaurants aside for now and just think of small retailers or something, or just small, you know, whatever, your mom and pop shop, um, that is going to be disproportionately burdened by a, a, a wage hike, a, a, an increase in the minimum wage. Um, what do you think about that idea of um, uh, giving tax breaks to smaller businesses and then uh, and then imposing those taxes or, or shifting some of that burden onto the larger, more profitable corporations, the Amazons and these types? Well, I picked on restaurants because they're the biggest users of minimum wage labor. Retail, actually, wages are a bit higher, even in small 
small shops like your hardware, you know, corner hardware store. Um, so there's less, they're, they're affected less. But nonetheless, you're raising a very good point, which is uh, a big box store, say, you know, it's like corporate stores has a lot more resources than your local hardware store. And so there might, uh, it might be a good reason to give some tax credits to small businesses. Small businesses do deserve some support, but it's really important to separate out what the problems are of small business uh, versus big business. And then because they're real problems, like retail is disappearing, physical retail compared to, you know, giant online retail. Uh, that, that's not because of the minimum wage. That's because of other things that are going on, whether it's, you know, the rise of the internet or now the effects of the pandemic. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm for, uh, I think tax credits are fine. Uh, another thing that we do in California, both at the state level and the city level, is we give, uh, first of all, we phase in these minimum wage increases over five years, they're not overnight. And then we phase them for even for a longer period for small businesses. So if you have less than 25 employees, you have an extra year of adjustment uh, in, in any of the city and state city minimum wages in California and also at the state level. So that, that's also a way to recognize their, their issues. Could you give us your prediction of what you expect to see as far as the minimum wage? Predictions. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know who Yogi Berra is or was rather no. all-star catcher for the New York Yankees. And I grew up. Well, he was famous for all kinds of aphorisms, uh, and one of them was forecasting is very hard, especially when it's about the future. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know the economists are any better than anyone else at forecasting, uh, particularly when the when what's going on now is very much involved in partisan politics. Uh, I. I I have seen that many states have raised their minimum wages above the federal level in the last 25 years. And that includes now something like 60% of the workforce. And seven states, plus now Florida, have uh, elected to go to 15, and District of Columbia is another one. And there could be a couple more states that would join that list. and I, uh, in Georgia, for example, the minimum wage was very popular. Uh, a, a $15 minimum wage is very popular. And I think the advocacy of a $15 minimum wage did help the, the two Democratic candidates in the runoffs uh, win over the Republicans. And now those are the two of the senators the most consistent that we keep raising. If we do raise the federal minimum wage to $15. Or else maybe there will be some change in Georgia politics that has happened previously in, in um, say, like in Florida or in Virginia, which uh, used to be red states where the minimum wage is one of the issues, not the only issue that has turned those states into purple or blue states. So I expect to see more action continuing at, at the state and local level, whatever the feds do. And I also expect that this will be a, a this is such a defining issue now for the democrats that they're not going to give up on it they're going to try to keep pushing on it uh, it may take reform of the senate's rules and getting rid of the filibuster so we have majority rule or it may take 
uh, the Democrats picking up a couple more seats in 2022, which is quite likely. Uh, or admitting some more states to the union, like making D.C. and Puerto Rico states, which had more Democrats. So, uh, you know, I, I'm hopeful that the tide is kind of changing, the direction of change is in favor of, of uh, a federal $15 minimum wage, but it, it's uh, uh, it's obviously still uh, going to take a while. And, and I think the, the other thing that's really important is that the social movements that have been like Fight for 15, and if they keep the pressure on, and especially at, at the state level and legislative elections and so on, that, that's why this has become such a popular issue, you know, more than what economists like myself have done is, is the, the power of those those movements. Right. And it's really Senator Manchin, I think, from West Virginia, who's blocking all of this because he's the one dissenter among the Democrats who's saying that $15 it, is... It's not. It's crazy because the minimum wage is already eight seventy five in in West Virginia. And there's very few people working there for less than 9 or $10. So when he says $11 would be about right over five years, that's, that's like that nothing. Uh, and he's denying increases to hundreds of thousands of, of West Virginia workers, more in, in the lower, one of the lowest wage states in the U.S. So um, it's not a very democratic kind of system. The public support for the minimum wage uh, in general runs about 70 to 80 percent. And for a $15 minimum wage, it's been running 60 to 70 percent. And in all the state referenda, there have been about 20 Eight or nine of them, they uh, almost everyone has passed, all but one, uh, and that one passed later in the same state, and all of them have passed by margins like 60, 65 percent. So Florida, while it was voting for Trump, was passing a fifteen dollar minimum wage. And that wraps up this episode of Who Belongs. I'd like to thank our guest, Michael Reich, Professor of Economics and Chair of the Center on Wage and Employment Dynamics at UC Berkeley for sharing his expertise on the impacts of minimum wage increases. We'll place links to some of Professor Reich's work, as well as a transcript of this episode and other relevant resources on our website at belonging.berkeley.edu slash whobelongs. Thank you for listening.